0: the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. Of my oldest best friends and current roommate is moving out at the end of the month. I'll miss her, but I'm happy for all the exciting new opportunities that she's taking on in her life. Moving in with her boyfriend, looking into continuing education programs, maybe getting a cat, maybe getting two cats, definitely letting me hang out with her cats. <laughs> we have to fill her room though, so we've been holding interviews. I always forget how much I like interviewing people. It's interesting to hear some quick bios about people, hear what they're looking for in housemates, their patterns in life. I don't date. This is the closest I get to the dating experience. We get half an hour, show off the house, chat about the neighborhood and ourselves, and then the person leaves, and we all look at each other and either nod or shrug or wince. More nods than winces happen. We're pretty descriptive in our ads, so people know what sort of quiet, hermity living situation they're getting into. We interviewed some nice folks over the past few weeks, and I do tend to mention my podcast when listing facts about my life. Saying I have a space podcast is a good way to start a conversation about either outer space or podcasts. I live in Portland, Oregon, so people are likely to want to talk about the podcast aspect more than the space aspect, but that's all right. I like talking about any piece of this hobby. I'm not as prolific as I'd like to be. I haven't felt very inspired lately, but I'm still proud of this podcast and all the work that I've put into it over the, I believe it has been two years now, two years of podcasting. Thank you all for listening so long. (laughs) So I say I make a space podcast. One woman that we were interviewing was more willing to chat than some of the other people we've talked to, which is a plus in my book. I like to listen And she mentioned that she had a friend who was getting her Ph.D. in geology, but space geology, the geology of other planets and moons and such. Our interviewee didn't have a solid grasp of what the degree was in. I proposed xenogeology, but I was intrigued. I did Google space geology and learned that this is a field of study called planetary geology, astrogeology, or exogeology. So I wasn't far off with my fun guess. I also knew I had my next podcast topic. It's not just about astrogeology, though. I'll also be talking about the scientist who founded the entire field of astrogeology, Gene Shoemaker, but more on him later. Although the geo prefix in planetary geology would normally indicate topics that are related to Earth, it uses that prefix because this science applies geological science to other planetary bodies. I'll be calling it astrogeology in this episode because that feels more accurate to me. It doesn't just address the geology of other planets, but their moons as well, along with asteroids, comets, and meteorites. Astrogeology explores what the internal structures of solid planets, giant planets, and moons might be, volcanoes on other planets, the structure and makeup of minor bodies like asteroids and comets, and planetary surface processes like impact craters or the effect of wind and water forces. Some cool words that I learned that are relevant to geology, both astro- and earthbound, aeolian and fluvial processes. Aeolian processes refers to the wind's ability to shape the surface of a planet by eroding, transporting, and depositing materials. The name comes from the Greek god Aeolus, who is keeper of the winds. Aeolian processes are most effective in desert regions, where the sparse vegetation, dry soil, and loose sediments mean that these processes have the greatest impact. Fluvial processes are the ways in which rivers and streams impact a planet's surface by eroding or creating deposits and landforms out of sediment. Sometimes, streams or rivers are associated with glaciers, ice sheets, or ice caps, and then they are called glaciofluvial or fluvial-glacial processes. Very fun to say. (laughs) Astrogeology has some standardized descriptor names for the various planetary features that the field works to describe. Adding a proper name to these descriptors works to narrow down what people are referencing. For example, astronomers who are familiar with the surface of Mars will know what the Mare Erythrium is referring to, a dark patch that is visible with even a small telescope when observing the red planet. The accepted terms for different planetary features are all recognized by the International Astronomical Union, New names for astrogeological features must be recognized by the International Astronomical Union's Working Group for Planetary System Nomenclature, which means that the names for certain features can change as new, better images become available. There's a big list that I found on Wikipedia of astrogeology features, but I'll just describe a few that I think are particularly cool and that allow me to talk about some of the key features that astrogeology identifies. Some of the earliest astrogeologic features observed from Earth were named albedo features, This is an area of a planet that has a high contrast in color with the surrounding area on a planet's surface, and initially was just observed on Mercury and Mars. Venus was too cloudy. It's a general term for the observation of irregular coloring on a planet's surface, usually made from Earth-based telescopes. The very first albedo feature ever seen on another planet was Certus Major Planum on Mars, which was observed via telescope in the 17th century. This darker surface feature was initially thought to be a plane, but turned out to be a shield volcano. The dark color was a result of the volcanic basalt rock combined with a relative lack of the red dust that covers Mars. Because we have better imaging and can do satellite flybys of planets now, the term has fallen out of fashion except in amateur astronomy circles. You can get way more specific about what you're talking about instead of just saying, albedo features when you see a different shade to a planet. Some other terms that describe planets' features as seen from Earth include a facula, which is Latin for little torch and describes a bright spot on planets or moons, a fossa, which is a long, narrow depression in the planet's surface and literally just is the Latin word for ditch, vallis, a valley, chasma, a long, steep-sided, deep-surface indentation, colles, which are collections of small hills that look knobbly. Mare, which is a large circular plain and is the Latin word for sea. Dorsum, which is a wrinkle-like ridge. Chaos terrain, where ridges, cracks, and plains on a planet's surface appear broken and smashed up against each other. A lobate scarp, which is fun to say, and describes a curved slope that is probably formed by compressive tectonic movement. And terra, which describes an extensive landmass like a plain or a highland. A lot of these terms can be applied to specific features or planets. For example, Aphrodite Terra is a highland region near the equator of Venus, and Iani Chaos is a region of chaos terrain on Mars. That was a lot of terms, but I hope it gives a sense of how many specific terms the International Astronomical Union has to describe geologic features on other planets and moons. Some only apply to specific planets and moons, too. For example, Saturn's moon Titan has lacunae, which are irregularly shaped depressions that look like dry lake beds. No other planets or moons have this term applied to them. There are also regions on Venus called tesserae that are tiled polygonal shapes, and that term is only used for this feature on this specific planet. a man named Eugene Shoemaker, or Eugene Schumacher, is really the founder of astrogeology. There were naked eye observations of planets, comets, asteroids, and moons undertaken before this, of course, and people drew and published their observations, speculating about what they were seeing. This wasn't always a great decision. I have talked about this in my episode on planets, but in 1877, the astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli published a map of his observations of Mars's canali, or the straight-sided channels that he had seen on the surface of Mars. Canali is Italian for channel, which is a general term and can be applied to natural phenomena, but it was mistranslated as canal. Since the Suez Canal had just been completed, people assumed that Chaparelli had meant that there were large-scale, artificially constructed canals on Mars. This misled some people into thinking that there was intelligent life on the planet, but it all eventually got cleared up. People attempted to photograph the planet, stars, and other celestial objects that they observed. Early photography equipment could really only capture the moon because it was so close and so reflective. It is Gene Shoemaker who is publicly credited with the hypothesis that the pockmarks on the surface of the moon were caused by meteorite impacts. He came up with this theory when he was investigating some craters in the Hopi Buttes of northern Arizona in 1950. Shoemaker had completed his master's of science studying the, uh, quote, petrology of Precambrian metamorphic rock in northern New Mexico, end quote. I don't know what that means, but I can guess it's analyzing the structure of very old rocks. Anyway, Shoemaker went out to an area near Meteor Crater, which is also known as Barrington Crater. There was a mining engineer, and entrepreneur named Daniel Baringer, who, in 1891, thought that the site had been created by the impact of an iron-containing meteorite. Scientists rejected his theory, instead agreeing with the chief geologist of the United States Geological Survey that the crater was caused by an explosion of volcanic steam. When Shoemaker saw the crater, though, and explored the materials that were found at this site— he drew on his previous experience with the geologic results of chemical and nuclear explosions to prove that the cause had to be outside of Earth rather than from Earth. When Shoemaker saw the crater, though, and explored the materials that were found at this site, he drew on his previous experience with the geologic results of chemical and nuclear explosions to prove that the cause had to be outside of Earth rather than within. With Edward Chow and B.M. Madsen, Shoemaker discovered cuisite, a polymorph of silicon dioxide, at Meteor Crater. Cuisite only forms when very high pressure and moderately high temperatures are applied to quartz, and it had never been found in a volcanic environment. This confirmed the hypothesis for a meteorite impact. Shoemaker and Chow conducted field mapping in various sites throughout the 1950s and 60s, reinforcing the idea that many craters throughout the world were the result of meteorite impacts. Their work later contributed to the theories about dinosaur extinction. I do remember being told about the meteor impact wiping out the dinosaurs as a kid, and it was thanks to Shoemaker and Chow that these ideas were entertained as a viable theory for the disappearance of the dinosaurs between the Cretaceous and Tertiary eras about 65 million years ago. Any excuse to talk about dinosaurs? In 1956, Shoemaker proposed constructing a geological map of the moon, but the U.S. Geological Survey kept him in the earthly field, studying craters generated by small nuclear test explosions in Nevada. This work with nuclear craters contributed to his later research on the mechanics of meteorite impacts. He remained obsessed with the moon, though, and wrote a paper with Robert Hackman in 1956 called Stratigraphic Basis for a Lunar Timescale, which applied geology in an attempt to decipher the history of the moon. The moon and planetary impacts took over the rest of his career all the way up to his death. In 1961, Shoemaker established the astrogeology program of the U.S. Geological Survey. He went on to lead the study of the new science of astrogeology, took a lead role in two unmanned probe missions to the moon that were called Surveyor and Ranger, and contributed to training astronauts at NASA. He forged the relationship between NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey, which led to geologic techniques being used to interpret remote sensing data during missions to the moon. He contributed his knowledge of lunar surface processes to the Apollo missions, though he wasn't able to go to the moon himself. He was on the list for future missions and undergoing astronaut training when he was diagnosed with Addison's disease in 1963, which disqualified him from space travel. Shoemaker became the chief scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey's Astrogeology Center in 1965, and he arranged the geological activities planned for the lunar landings. So, really, we have Shoemaker to thank for all of the space rocks that we've collected from the moon. When he returned to Caltech, Shoemaker gained a new interest in the objects that created the craters that had started his career. He began to search for asteroids with his colleague, the planetary scientist Eleanor Helen. He also started thinking about ways to interpret phenomena on other planets. He was part of the team that proposed that the plumes on Jupiter's moon Io were geysers and volcanoes, and also on the team that proposed that the plumes on Neptune's moon Triton were degassing nitrogen. While he was at Caltech, his wife, Carolyn Shoemaker, began to engage in astronomy and astrogeologic study as well. She joined Jean's team as a research assistant when she was 51, after raising their three children, and began looking for near-Earth objects. With Jean and their colleague David H. Levy, Carolyn identified the comet Shoemaker-Levy-9, a fragmented comet orbiting Jupiter, in 1993. These comet chunks later fell into Jupiter in a spectacular fashion in 1994, which gave us our first direct observation of planetary impacts from comets. Over the course of his career, Jean Shoemaker developed the idea of dating planetary surfaces using statistics of the numbers and size distributions of impact craters started a sky survey to detect asteroids that cross Earth's orbit, gave us a hypothesis for the death of the dinosaurs thanks to impacts, and founded the entire field of modern astrogeologic study. He died in 1997 on the back roads of Alice Springs, Australia, in a head-on car collision while exploring lesser-known impact craters on Earth. Some of his ashes were brought to the moon in 1999 on the Lunar Prospector space probe, making Gene Shoemaker the only person to have a burial on a celestial body beyond Earth. His ashes aren't mixed in with moon dust or anything. His remains are contained in a capsule designed by fellow planetary scientist Carolyn C. Porco, and the casing includes images of the comet Hale-Bopp, which Porco says was, quote, the last comet the Shoemakers observed together, end quote. The Beringer Meteor Crater that started his career, and a quotation from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Quote, and when he shall die, take him out and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Carolyn Shoemaker survived the crash with serious injuries, and she has continued to work on asteroid identification. She works as a planetary astronomer at the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, and once held the record for number of comets identified by an individual. As of 2002, she had been credited with discovering or co-discovering 32 comets and more than 800 asteroids. So, that's quite a bit about the impact one person had on the study of astrogeology. He didn't do it alone, of course. Science doesn't exist in a vacuum, and a second or third or fourth opinion can always help. Where does the field stand today, though? I talked about some terms that astrogeologists use to define the features they were seeing terms like albedo features, lobate scarps, chaos formations, stuff like that. But what other kinds of work do these people do? Well, according to a very helpful science career website, astrogeologists do a lot of field work, collecting data from multiple sources using a range of techniques. They analyze imagery of extraterrestrial bodies, which can include everything from the moon to other planets or asteroids. They may also use imagery that was obtained from radar or spectral photography or data from robotic missions to the surface of more predictably moving objects. Astrogeology also requires an understanding of the geologic processes that shape our world so that these scientists can apply this understanding to other worlds. That means you're out looking at earth rocks, collecting samples, and running computer simulations to try and understand the connections and processes that go into forming them. The U.S. Geological Survey maintains an astrogeology science center in Arizona. People working at this site are participating in space exploration, from viewing images of a planet's surface to running remote-controlled probes. The website tells you you're providing a, quote, public service by contributing to the public knowledge about our solar system, end quote. These scientists are doing some pretty cool things. Close to home, they're analyzing crater sites, but they're also performing aeolian analysis of the sand dunes on Mars, and ice cap analysis as well, and mapping planets and satellites. They have one of the most badass-named working groups, too, the Mars Ice Consortium. I don't know why it sounds so awesome to me, but it does. <laughs> There's some work they do with lunar calibration that sounds cool, too. They maintain the moon as a reference source and bounce radio waves off of it to calibrate instruments. According to the website, quote, the unmatched stability of the lunar surface reflectance makes the moon attractive as a calibration light source. Its radiance can be known with high precision and accuracy. The lunar irradiance is similar in brightness to sunlit land masses on the Earth, end quote. So I suppose that's kind of a comprehensive list of what an astrogeologist could be expected to do. Work on mapping analyzing planets and all the available data and resources they can, seeing the literal impact of space rocks on Earth, and contributing wherever larger space-exploring organizations see fit to slot them in. Astrogeologists are experts in applying geological knowledge to extraterrestrial objects. What an awesome job. And that wraps it up. From the terms to describe the surface of an object, to the man who started it all, and all the way back to what astrogeologists do with their time, this has been my 31st episode in two years of podcasting. I'm not going as strongly as I did that first year, but I'm not out of ideas for podcasts yet, and I am genuinely enjoying how many of my ideas for podcasts come from telling someone about HD in the Void. People like space. They like thinking about and talking about and learning about space, and I'm no exception. (laughs) In the coming year, though, I'd like to start extending my podcast to actually talking to people about space. I think that other people have a lot to say, and I know of at least a few connections I could make that would involve interviewing people about their own space knowledge and experience. We'll see if anything comes of it. I've been saying I'll interview someone about space for a long time now, but I'd like to try. In the meantime, for the next episode, this would be an easy transition to do an episode about comets. I think I'll commit to talking about some famous comets, including Shoemaker Levy 9. As always, feel free to suggest some ideas of topics for me to cover by sending an ask to my Tumblr or tweeting at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, all one word. Go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you won't miss new episodes. It would also be awesome if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review the podcast there as well. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it compresses my low scarps. <laughs> I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to compress some scarps of your own. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocabulist and the episode transcript at all one word, fill the void dash with dash space dot dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void HD signing off.